we're very focused on the return that we get for the spend that we put out there. Okay, welcome back to the Marketing Playbook presented by Details Interactive. Here you'll take away three game-winning marketing plays every episode to take back to your team. I'm your host, Mark Friedman, and my career has been focused on direct-to-consumer marketing, direct mail, physical retail, and digital commerce. This is episode number 67, and today's guest is David Zucker, CMO and SVP e-commerce at Purdue Farms. David wins my award for having been involved in more industry verticals than anyone that I know. It's a great story about how he went from wanting to be a vet to selling chicken for a living. Before we get started, a quick thank you as always to Max Brandstetter of the Wild Business Growth Podcast for producing this episode. You can reach him at max at maxpodcasting.com to help bring your podcast to life. Let's open the playbook. Ready, break. Well, hello, everyone. Thank you for joining the Marketing Playbook Podcast. Today, I'm joined by David Zucker. David is the Chief Marketing Officer and SVP e-commerce at Purdue Farms. He joined in January 2019 to develop and oversee all aspects of Purdue's e-commerce strategy. He's more than 25 years of e-commerce, marketing, merchandising, product development, analytics, and call center management experience. He was most recently general manager and chief marketing officer of Omaha Steaks International, a multi-channel retailer of premium single and multi-ingredient food. Prior to joining Omaha Steaks, he was CMO for both Vitacost.com, a public online retailer of vitamin nutritional supplements and shelf-stable foods, and Guilt Group, an online flash sale retailer of high-end fashion for women, men, children, and home products. He's also held progressively more senior roles at Dell Inc., The Home Shopping Network, Martha Stewart Living, Omnimedia, and Priceline.com. He's also a quite accomplished professor having taught courses on basic and advanced economic theory, pricing, environmental economics, and statistics. David, welcome to the show. Mark, it's great to be here. Thanks for having me. All right. Well, thanks for making the time. We'll, we'll get into your first story, but uh, you know, it's been a long time since uh, we've seen each other and, and we've chatted, but I've always been enamored with the breadth of industry verticals that you have worked in. Meat, chicken, you know, I don't know, is there a national fish provider out there that is, is next on the horizon for you? No, but my PhD dissertation was in fish. <laughs> was it really? Yeah, it really was. Yeah, I did an uh, aquaculture, it was a fish farming um, summer flounder in this, for the sushi markets. Well, look at that. So you've got everything, all the proteins uh, covered. Yeah, everything but pork. Okay. Um, let's get, uh, go back. Um, listeners to the show know that uh, we like to talk about uh, the guest's first story, you know, kind of your upbringing, where maybe you grew up. And, and frankly, you know, was there anything in your background that might have given rise to uh, the belief that, you know, you'd end up doing what you do today for as a career? So the punchline is absolutely not. I definitely did not think I was going to be doing what I'm doing now. It was not in the plan. So I went to college with the idea of becoming a vet. And so um, went to West Virginia University for my bachelor's and honestly just enjoyed school a lot more than I enjoyed class. So I just couldn't, I just couldn't make the grades to get into vet school. And so I changed my major to wildlife management. 
when I was getting ready to graduate, I got introduced to um, the guy who was the head of the environmental economics department. And I needed a credit to graduate, and he was able to kind of put together a one-credit seminar for me. And what he really taught me was the power that economics had in making decisions about environmental issues. And so I was really interested in environmental issues and wanted to be a biologist. And what he explained to me and showed me through the power of economics was how economics is a policy tool and could be much more impactful. And so I spent the summer between kind of my my bachelor's or my my bachelor's program and is getting ready to graduate, um, really thinking about kind of what I wanted to do. And he offered me an assistantship for a master's program, and so that's how I got into the economics area and got a master's degree um, in environmental economics, and then kind of went on to get my PhD and. Really what happened there is I was going to be a professor and I was going to go teach. And then I had my, I had twins in my last year of my doctorate program. And being a professor doesn't pay a whole lot of money. And twins use a great deal of diapers and food and um, I needed to make more money. So I ended up um, using the analytic background from my economics training to run statistical sort of regression models, targeting models for a, for a junk mailer. And so I was one of the statisticians that used to help direct mail companies build the direct mail targeting models. And that's how I got into marketing was just that was the first job. It was right out of my doctorate program. What I really learned there was the power that not only that economics has, but that, that math had in helping people make decisions. And kind of up there, it was kind of more progressive. But that's what really got me into the field. Yeah, uh, I certainly know firsthand the cost of uh, twins, uh, ha having a, a set of my own that are almost 29 years old uh, now. So, uh, you know, definitely uh, get that. So, you know, it's so interesting. Let's talk about the professor uh, aspect of your uh, your life. Are you are you still doing a, an adjunct kind of a role or or, or what? So not anything recently. Um, I am getting back into it. It's just, it's something that, you know, it's a lot of work to put classes together, um, a lot of time kind of away from the family. And I think that it was just something that, and I did, and I enjoyed it for a, a long time. I did it when I was in several different jobs and it was really valuable for me. I think it just got to a point where, um, it just wasn't as valuable in the career and where I was in my career to keep doing that part of it. I wasn't getting as much value out of it. I think now, kind of given where I live and the community that I'm in, there actually there are two universities that are pretty close to where I live, and I think that they're in need of you know some folks with my background. So I'm in the process of kind of doing that. It's I have to be kind of careful only because you know it's a small community, and we just want to be sensitive to them working with, you know, someone at Purdue just because I'm at Purdue, as opposed to kind of really wanting someone from the community to be part of it. So we're just, just being, just kind of balancing that. Yeah, it's interesting. I, I've always uh, wanted to be a college professor. Um, and maybe not always, but, you know, certainly as I've uh, been, you know, in my career and I love doing, um, you know, special uh, speaking engagements and, you know, being that uh, uh, add on uh, into a class. But the amount of effort I've seen, as, as you're referring to, the amount of effort to put the class together, the syllabus, keep it interesting um, is definitely a lot of work uh, for sure. Yeah, it's a huge amount of work. 
work. Uh, so, you know, as I was mentioning, you know, about the the different verticals, you know, that you've been in, what's the 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 theme that weaves all these different verticals together? Is it the an analytical aspect of what they all need? Yeah, I think the analytics would probably be one answer, Mark. Um, for me, the answer has always been the economics background and the way that an economist tends to think. I remember when I was in my master's program, one of the professors told me, he says, you, you'll know when you're an economist, when you start thinking like one and you start having questions, you start having conversations like economists. And I, and I had no idea what he meant. And then really, it was just kind of a, like a light bulb went off. And, and really that... That point is when, you know, a student starts to think about marginal costs and marginal benefit. It's that basic. And I think that that thinking, you know, the more advanced you get in economics, you get a whole bunch of other tools. But, you know, economics is a language and, and literally a, a process that any, every, any and every industry goes through. And so whether, you know, I was working at, with Martha Stewart's organization, kind of selling flowers or... Um, things online or Priceline selling airline tickets and hotels or, you know, at, at Omaha Steaks selling meat. It's really about consumer demand, which is, you know, you think about demand and supply and that's economics and what drives demand and consumer preference. It's, it's that language and understanding that the math helps a lot. I think the math helped me kind of get further in my career, especially as digital marketing became more prevalent, um, the need to quantify things. But economics, I think to your question specifically, economics by far is the is the common theme. It's a common language that regardless of what industry you're in, it's really about supply and demand. Yeah. And, you know, we don't think about it, perhaps, you know, unless you're an economist. I was an economics major as well. Um, but, you know, just the simple questions of can I raise my price and still sell as many units? I mean, that's really all all that is, is is economics and price elasticity and and things like that. So, yeah, interesting. Uh a lot of folks don't don't understand that that's really just uh, economics. Today, your role um, is a CMO. Um, you've held roles uh, as an analyst, database marketer, CM, uh, CRM related. So very technical in nature. Um, but you know, oftentimes a C CMO role is about branding. How has you know as over your tenure the CMO role changed, and where do you think it's going? So I, you know, look, I had to learn the more emotional part of being a marketer, right? So the branding aspects that you're talking about, they didn't come naturally to me. I didn't get trained in them in school. It wasn't, I had to learn them. But the way I've approached that part of my, of my job is, is twofold, Mark. One is, is I've looked at, it's kind of weird to say it this way, but I've looked at emotion as literally a variable in, equa in, in an equation. You know, whether I'm trying to make you happier or I'm trying to make you more connected to my brand, how do I measure that? And the, what creative, regardless of what the creative is, I have to be able to measure that somehow, whether it's a response, whether it's a click-through rate, whether it's picking up more things at the case, there has to be a way to measure that. So that's very analytical. Um, the other is through, and while it's analytical, is, is through by asking consumers through typical brand equity metrics. And, you know, typically, you know, you'd find in any developed category, there are going to be category drivers for the category that are very 
specific to that category around brand. So we're in the food space. Taste is an extremely important driver in food. And so how are we satisfying that brand equity attribute in our communication with consumers? And so while I want to be able to do it creatively, I have to be able to measure the impact of it. And so there's that there's that balance between we're going to keep pushing on it and, and the analytic aspect of being able to measure it. And, and if you look at the role of the CMO, is it going to change? You know, we have, we've got chief digital officer roles. We've got chief marketing officer. Different companies role the digital presence of their business under different, um, you know, C-suites. You know, how, how have you seen that change? Yeah, I think, you know, the, and the one chief you didn't mention was chief revenue officer, which is very often something like, you know, the marketing person has been responsible for in terms of driving demand. The, the role of the marketing person in the organization has become very broad. And depending, I think, on the organization you're in, if the person in the role is doing really well for part of what they need for marketing, Maybe they keep that under that under him or her, but you know if they're developing digital and the person doesn't have that capability, they might go hire a chief digital officer. Or if they are really focused on building brand and the marketing person is more of an analytical, demand driving digital person, they hire maybe a chief brand officer. So I think it's probably company specific. Um, I also think it changes over time, Mark. At least you know whether it's a chief people officer or chief, you know, chief customer officer, chief digital officer, chief revenue officer. I don't think a marketing person would not think about any one of those things. And so I think it also probably depends on the size and where maybe the company is in their, in their life, in their lifespan. Uh, so, you know, we, we talked about the different verticals that you're in. Um, also, the the name of the brands, you know, kind of well-known uh, brands you've been part of. Um, you know, one of the early ones was Priceline. Uh, just run us through quickly. You know, we we know a lot of the Priceline commercials, William Shatner and and all. Where were you in the in the timeline of, of Priceline's life uh, cycle? So I got there about a year or two after they went public. So... I was not there. I did not become super wealthy. So I still have to work, Mark. <laughs> but a lot of the people that did develop, you know, the, that marketing approach, um, some of them are still actually at, at Priceline. I stay in touch with them. Were there when, when I was there. So I was there kind of soon after um, they went public, but also around the time that they were doing that grocery business. And I just forgot the name just when I read it out of my head, but they had that huge grocery business that they were that they had launched and got into. And I was there when it started and I was there when they stopped it. Okay. So uh, interesting uh, time there. And then was HSN directly after that? Right. So um, no, I went to Martha Stewart right after, after Priceline. And so the, you know, the thing, one of the things that I've looked at kind of, you know, you asked that question, like a thread that is through my career the early jobs that I had, I say early jobs because I've been working for so long, but, you know, whether it's Priceline, Martha Stewart, the Home Shopping Network, Dell, most of these jobs, not only were they were big brands and the role that I was kind of being recruited for was really interesting, but there was something from an economics perspective that also really intrigued me. So, for example, at Priceline, Priceline was the first application of a perfect pricing model 
which is something in economy, like you, it's perfect, right? I mean, literally, it's you remember from supply and demand being able to capture all that consumer surplus. That was the idea. You would buy a ticket from, you know, New Jersey to Florida, you'd be willing to pay $150, and I'd only be willing to pay $125. We would both get the tickets, Priceline would sell them both to us. You would be willing to pay $125, but because you were willing to pay more, and they, you know, they had the algorithms to figure that out, they captured $25 more in revenue from you than they did from me. That was really exciting to kind of see that in practice. How did that actually work? You know, so as I went to other companies, so Martha Stewart was before the Home Shopping Network. Martha Stewart advertised in every single possible communication vehicle at the time, except for movies. Right, so she had print, digital, everything. She was in retail. She was television shows, the whole thing. And so that was really interesting. And then the Home Shopping Network, that was the first, it was my opportunity to be able to sell to a consumer that's buying 24 hours a day. And so you look at somebody that's buying at three o'clock in the afternoon versus three o'clock in the morning. You know, there's a lot of drunk 25-year-olds that are buying guitars at the Home Shopping Network at three o'clock in the morning. They're not buying them at three o'clock in the afternoon when, you know, they're selling to the woman who's primarily the target audience when I was there, you know, who might be home, you know, getting ready for the kids to come home from school and has it on in the background. And, and you know, there's you know, a rake comes up and she's like, oh, I need a rake. So she buys a rake. But it's it was that conversational thing. So there's those kind of things that, that were early in my career that tied some of that stuff together. You know, being the the economist or the analytical, you know, guy, you know, we all talk about KPIs, key performance indicators. How do you, you know, think about that for, you know, different businesses? Not all KPIs are uh, necessary for each business, depending upon which one you're in. But there's clearly some things back to that concept of a thread, certain KPIs that regardless of the vertical, regardless of what you're selling, all matter. What are a few of those? Yeah, so, you know, the, the one that's common regardless of the industry that – so most of the industries I've been in except for the most recent one has have been direct-to-consumer models. So it's – you know, the metrics are tied specifically to things you're doing directly with the consumer. The metrics are easier to get. The one metric that is common with a direct-to-consumer business and a CPG business is return on ad spend. So at the highest level, right, what is the return you're getting? And, and that's, that really is important. I think an organization, CPG companies, you know, maybe like our size, which aren't spending hundreds and, you know, millions of dollars in advertising, you know, like the really big guys, we're very focused on the return that we get for the spend that we put out there and what it's not only returning to us, but what it returns to the customers that we support. So it could be a Walmart or a Kroger or something like that. So that's one. Um, Believe it or not, as you know, as this digital environment has become more prolific, most CPG companies are getting into the direct-to-consumer space. Purdue has a direct-to-consumer model. It's PurduePharms.com. Many of the other CPG companies that have shelf-stable product, they have product where you can buy on their websites. I mean, Oreo has like a custom Oreo site that you can buy things from. So the air, so the metrics that are going to be important there, I mean, the two or three most important metrics in any direct-to-consumer model are cost for a new customer acquisition, you know, lifetime value. Those two are going to be super critical. The interesting thing is that if you're at a CPG company, unless you 
somehow get educated on those metrics, it's a tough lesson to learn because there's a lot of direct-to-consumer models out there right now. Some of them are public that still can't seem to understand that those are the metrics that really matter. Do you have a direct-to-consumer business? I enjoy connecting with guests on this podcast because it reminds me what I love to do, strategic and tactical consulting for businesses like yours. If you'd like to speak with me about your business and see how you can add a fresh set of eyes to your team, contact me at mark at detailsinteractive.com. Now let's get back to the marketing playbook. Yeah, and so was that was that hard for you in, in some of the businesses, you know, let's say going into Purdue with, um, you know, getting them to understand what those KPIs needed to be, you know, perhaps different KPIs than they were used to using? For sure. Yeah. So I took the, the role here as originally as the SVP of e-commerce and the, the, the specifically, literally the job description was, was we kind of want to get into this digital thing. And it was really to help Purdue figure out a digital strategy. It wasn't direct to consumer. Direct to consumer was part of the strategy. It was literally how does Purdue partake in digital? Um, and it was really, you know, it was really some really good forethought around from our CEO and Jim Purdue, our, our chairman and the board, to be able to invest in this area because literally a year and a half after I joined, COVID started and everybody wanted to understand how, how digital was operating. So the metrics for direct to consumer and in the digital space were definitely new to the organization because, you're, you know, this is not a, an organization that ever marketed specifically to Mark Friedman to get his purchase, right? What we did was we sold our product to Kroger that, that's down the street from you, and you would go to Kroger and buy the product. So we operated like a typical CPG company where we would do advertising and support through the marketing networks that are set up in, in that in that kind of industry. And so understanding customer acquisition costs, lifetime value, all the other metrics you would get through the digital funnel were very new to the organization. Um, but it was important that we focused on a couple of the key ones, especially since we were building a business here. You know, customer acquisition costs was something that we forecasted and we measured. And so we explained to them, we're going to start, it's going to be very high. And over time, it's going to come down and you were going to be able to do customer segmentation. So there's some consumers I might be only willing to spend $20 on, and there might be consumers I'm willing to spend $200 on. And here's why I know that. Here's how I'm going to be able to manage that. That's, that was very, very new to the organization. Obviously, you, you can only say what you can say, but you know, in a business like Purdue Farms, you're selling chicken, you were a wholesaler, uh, the, the play for digital, what was the impetus for it? You know, was it around, you know, capturing a better picture of, you know, first party data of who your customer was? Was it, you know, just cannibalize yourself perhaps before others cannibalize you? What, what was the, the conversation like? So I would tell you that the, in, the, the position from the company to me was they wanted to make sure that our brand was still in front of the consumer all the time. And so that was, and it was a very broad statement because our major competition is, you know, in the chicken space is there's a couple of other brands that we compete against, but that we compete against in the fresh chicken area, our biggest competition is private label. And so in every, in every retailer, it's different whether you're competing against Purdue and what that specific brand is. And so, we wanted to make sure our brand was in front of consumers in another way. 
So that was the big thing. The three pillars of our digital strategy, kind of after we walked through it and did a lot of kind of internal soul searching, was, you know, we definitely realized we needed a direct-to-consumer business um, for some of the things you just mentioned. We wanted first-party data. We wanted access to consumers and understanding, you know, how are they buying our products? Where would they buy our products? Because our products, while we're primarily a fresh chicken business east of the Mississippi, we've got prepared products all throughout the country. Shipping, we can do fro- we do frozen chicken all throughout the country, but our chicken east of the Mississippi is primarily a fresh business. So they're two different products, and we don't compete on price. But one of the one of the pillars was direct to consumer. We wanted to get the product out there. We wanted people to be able to consume it where they weren't getting access to it. We wanted to learn and get that first party data, like you said. So that was one thing. The second thing was is to figure out how a digital strategy or digital support could support our customers. And so, how does Purdue become a partner with Kroger or Walmart with digital? And so that initially, Mark, was just having somebody that knew digital on this side of the table. So when the sales team went in and talked about, hey, here you guys are doing something in digital, they the sales team has no idea what they're talking about. So they would talk to me. They're like, can you speak their language, please? So it was a little bit of that. And what we ended up doing was, you know, that part of our strategy, that second pillar is really around the premise there is Purdue should be a demand driver for our customers. So ultimately, we don't care where people buy our product. I don't care whether they buy it at PurdueFarms.com or whether they buy it at Kroger. I just want them to buy Purdue. And so our experience that you have at Purdue Farms or Purdue is if you come into those two channels, you can either we can either ship you the product if we, if we sell it frozen, PurdueFarms.com. But if that product is offered at a retailer, there is a buy now button. That's a local button that you can click on on the product detail page on our direct-to-consumer site that will take you to the retailer. And the Purdue.com experience, so not Purdue Farms, but in the brand experience, those product detail pages link you to technology that shows you here's all the places you could buy it. Purdue Farms is listed as an option, but Kroger and all these other ones are listed there as well. Beyond the fact that they're buying your product at the retailer, are you benefiting in any way from the traffic you're driving to the retailer? So, no. So, for example, we know, we can see that if I send Mark Friedman from a Purdue digital experience to Walmart, I can see that you've converted on their site and you've spent $100. I can't see what that $100 was spent on. And I can't actually even see that you spent $100. All I can see is I've spent, I've sent a certain number of people over there. So many have converted, and this is the value of their conversions. They could have bought non-chicken items. I know they did because oh, there's, okay. there's just, there's, there's too no many way, dollars. <laughs> there's too many dollars there, right? So, so the benefit that we get is we can literally sit in front of our buyers at Walmart and say, look, we have driven, we drove 10,000 people to your website this week. Of those 10,000, 1,000 people converted and they generated, say it's $10,000 worth of revenue. I don't know another retailer that's going in with that information. Maybe there are. But that partnership is another is, is just something that we didn't have before. We weren't – the value that we get as Purdue is we're a partner in terms of making sure that they understand, you know, we get a million unique visitors to all the Purdue properties on a monthly basis – I want them to do one of two things, get the information they wanted or buy a product. 
I don't care whether it's here or whether it's at the retailer. So that's really the second pillar. And then the third pillar is to be able to use that direct-to-consumer platform as a testing bed for new product. Anybody who's, who's listening to this and knows CPG is notorious for it takes forever to get a product from concept into the market, all for good reason. There's a lot of research that goes into whether the category can expand and is it the right product. There's a lot of testing. But I think what's happened in the digital space, you know, you see this in clothing where you've got fast fashion. And, you know, one of the things we did at Omaha Steaks is we had this concept that we developed there called fast food, which is literally from idea to selling on the website in 90 days. A CPG company does not operate like that. And so we can do that here. So we've got small plants. We have an innovation center. I run the product development area as well. And so we can come up with an idea have our chefs create bench samples, go into our pilot plants, create pilot plant product that is USDA approved for sale, put it in packaging, sell it on the direct-to-consumer site. And you have enough traffic to, to give you statistically valid results. Absolutely. Absolutely. In fact, we've got you know one product that we, we launched that way two years ago was, was this product called Thanks Nuggets, which was a chicken. It was a turkey nugget that was that had a spin for Thanksgiving. There was a sweet potato version and a cranberry version. We developed them internally, put them on the website, sold out of them in three minutes. Now, there weren't a whole, there weren't tens of thousands of them, but we sold out of them in three minutes. And that story is what our salespeople took in to the retailers. And the next year, so this past year, it was one of our highest selling volume, one of our highest volume products in the ready to eat space because it's a limited time offer. We had a little bit of data that showed that A, we could do it, it was ready to go, and we had some consumer data that showed that you know consumers will buy it at this price. Here's the kind of consumer that bought it. It was wildly successful. And so our ability to do that not only helps with things that work, but there's a whole bunch of things we've tested that haven't worked as well, which is, help, which is a significant cost savings, especially when you think about the time and resources that go into developing products. And I imagine the things that work are then rolled out to your retailers or at least brought to them as success items and letting them decide whether they think they want to give it some shelf space. Exactly. And whether it's incremental shelf space or whether it's going to replace an existing product. And, you know, obviously the argument is is we would like to have more shelf space, you know, and have it be incremental. So, yeah, it's, it's a great it's a great tool that we're still honestly, Mark, but we're still learning how to use it. Yeah, it's it's so interesting because you know listening to you talk about that, you know, different industry. You know, I spent seven years running the e-commerce business at Steve Madden, and you know when I got there, that business was you know in the U.S. market, you know, seventy-five percent of the volume was done uh, at wholesale, so with other re- retailers, whether it be Amazon or Nordstrom or Macy's or whomever, and you know the the business had cultivated the ability to have a a web business and a store business uh, where they tested new items saw those items you know either succeed or not but the ones that succeeded were then rolled out you know to wholesale so it was a, a testing opportunity so very much uh, similar uh, to what you're talking about uh, last question um, before we get to our 2 minute drill people talk about paralysis by analysis and for somebody you know like you who's got your your analytical background not implying at all that you get <laughs> caught into that but how do you deal with that, you know, especially in a company that might be really inquisitive, they're new, you know, to some of this stuff? Um, how does that work for you? 
So, you know, I think as you become more senior in organization, you quickly realize, you know, who your audience is. And, you know, if you're going to be successful, the higher up you go, whether, you know, if you want to get into management, I mean, there's clearly people that are very senior analytical people and that, and that's a skill set and a responsibility. I did not go that route because it was just not something that I, I enjoyed. The, you won't be successful if you overanalyze things. And so, you know, when I was at AT&T very early in my career, one of the folks that I worked for there had an MBA and really explained to me that, look, you're gonna, it's, it's not even the 90-10 or 80-20 rule. It's more of like the 60-40, 70-30 kind of rule. Like you just got to be – and it's going to be iterative. And so get things close enough that you're comfortable with and do it quickly. You know, don't spend way too much time. And I think the iteration process is something that, you know, we in the digital space, and if you're analytical, you get that. Let's put something out there, test it, improve on it. So for me personally, I became adept at not overanalyzing things and being able to communicate in one slide what the audience wants to know. What's the problem? What's the solution? And how fast are we going to be able to go do it? If they want to know in the solution, like how much money they're going to make. That's it. The rest of the stuff they really don't care about. And, you know, you tell all of them that stuff up front. And then if they ask you like, well, how did you get there? You can pull out reams of data and all that stuff. But, you know, typically the more senior you get, the more senior the person you're talking to is. And so that person is going to be trusting you that you talk to the analysts. And I think that's one of the things that, I've been able to do has made me successful is because I'm an economist and because I can run regression models and I understand the statistics. I can talk to that stuff very comfortably. A lot of people can't. And so I can also say, look, it's a tool. It's not everything. And it's some of this is going to have to be a conversation and we're going to have to hold hands and decide what we're going to do. And I feel like this, this direction is better and less risky than this, than this direction. And so Figuring out where the analytics and, you know, kind of fit in the conversation is probably the best, the best recommendation. Yeah, your background is uh, always have is uh, from the time I met you. I was always interested in you know the the mix of marketing and and economist and and the analytics. So really good stuff. Uh, thank you. All right, we'll get to the uh, two minute drill here. Uh, ask you seven questions, one word answer, if you please. Ready? Yep. Okay, a brand that you admire or that inspires you? Patagonia. Favorite app on your phone? Instagram. Last website other than Amazon that you shopped from? Dadent. Dadent. What is that? D-A-D-A-N-T. It's a uh, bee supply company. Okay. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Something that you're not good at but wish that you were? Dancing. (laughs) charitable organization that you're passionate about our local food pantry and if you had one superpower what would it be comedy other than family what's your most prized possession my eight weight fly rod okay so a fisherman and the bees and and working for a chicken company i guess there's a whole picture that uh, people can get of david zucker yeah it's an environmental background Yep. David, where can people reach out to you on social media if they'd like to connect? Uh, I'm on LinkedIn. That's the best way to get to me. Okay, great. Hey, it's nice to see you. Uh, thanks so much for the time. Congratulations on all your successes and, and your twins. 
And, um, you know, I'm glad that you're doing well. Mark, it was great talking with you. Thanks. That's it. Today's game ball goes to David Zucker for coming on the marketing playbook. To me, today's three game-winning marketing plays were as follows. Number one, the march to selling directly to the consumer continues. David spoke of how even a brand like Purdue is selling and wants to grow their business through selling to you online. They use the online business to generate revenue, test new products, and to support their retail partners. It just proves that almost all brands can be effective with a digital commercial presence. Number two, KPIs, key performance indicators. Every business has them, but regardless of your vertical, there are a few that everyone needs to understand. ROAS, return on ad spend, CAC, customer acquisition costs, and LTV, lifetime value, are three of the most important. Do you know what your KPIs are? And number three, there are some verticals that I've come across that believe that if you do not have that experience, you could not work in their business. Sure, each business has some nuance, but if you have the basic understanding of marketing and how to leverage emotion and the math behind marketing, you can be successful selling chicken or meat or beauty or just about anything. Don't let your lack of vertical expertise stand in the way of entertaining a new position. Thank you, Playbook Marketers, for listening to another episode. If you want to check out more pages of the Marketing Playbook, make sure to subscribe on your favorite podcast spot and leave us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts. You can also follow us on Twitter at Details Interact and learn more at detailsinteractive.com. Until next time, the devil is in the details.